Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. As artificial intelligence surges ahead, can we trust OpenAI and its boss, Sam Altman? I'm Azim Azar, and in this episode, I'm talking to Sam. Welcome to the Exponentially podcast. Now, Sam is a rock and roll star of AI. He runs OpenAI, and they built ChatGPT. He's raised billions of dollars from Microsoft. His early backers include Elon Musk and Reid Hoffman. It's been quite the journey, but the more we know about AI, the more questions the technology raises. I caught up with Sam at the beginning of a world tour that would cover 20 countries in just 30 days. We spoke to each other at University College London in front of a live audience of nearly a thousand people. You must be rushed off your feet. You're in the middle of a enormous world tour. How are you doing? It's been super great. And I didn't, I wasn't sure how much fun I was going to have. I really wanted to do it because I think the sort of San Francisco echo chamber is not a great thing. And I, I have never found a replacement for getting on airplanes and meeting people. Uh, and the feedback we've gotten about what people want us to do, how they're thinking about AI, what they're excited about, what they're nervous about. It's been even more useful than I expected. And I've had a great time. I've seen you taking notes by hand in a notebook as you hear from people as well. I still take my notes by hand. I do my to-do list by hand. There's going to be a lesson in there for, for many of us. I think there's probably no lesson. <laughs> <laughs> when you started OpenAI in 2015, did you imagine that within just a few years, you would almost by necessity have to get on a plane, fly around the world to listen to people from every continent? I've always tried to do this. When I was running Y Combinator, I would try to fly around and meet people a lot. I think it's really important. I also like, I think most of my important insights come while traveling in some way and you get, you get very different perspectives. And certainly when we started OpenAI, I thought it probably wasn't going to work. But mm -hmm. if it did work, then I thought like it would be an impactful technology and getting input from the world would be a really important thing to do. You're in an unprecedented position right now in many cases in the Silicon Valley model, the, the founder of a business like this owns a lot of equity, takes a salary as well, has a financial upside, and you don't have any of that. You just draw enough for your health insurance. So what is the inner drive for you, given the challenge, given the, the demands uh, on your time, your energy? I can't think of any more exciting thing. I mean, I hope this is like self-explanatory, but I can't think of anything more exciting to work on. I feel like extremely privileged to be at this moment in history. And more than that, like working with this particular team, I don't know like how I would possibly rather spend the days. I was very fortunate. I made a bunch of money very early in my career. So I don't think it's some like great noble thing. I was thinking about what does it mean to face these types of exciting challenges? And some of them are genuinely sort of intellectually exciting. Some are really hard, thorny problems and you are in an unprecedented position. Do you have mentors? Are there people you're learning from? I, I, I feel like super fortunate to have had great mentors. But I, I also think it's important not to try to like learn too much from other people and sort of do things your own way. One of the magical things about 
Silicon Valley is how much people care about mentorship and teaching. And I've gotten way more than my fair share there. If we pick out one or two lessons from the great mentors you've had, what would they be? Paul Graham, who ran Y Combinator before I started it and ran it before I did, I think did more to teach people about how startups work very heavily from what it takes to make a high-functioning org and, and, and the traps you want to avoid there. Certainly learning from Elon about what is possible to do and that you don't need to accept that hard technology right. is not something you ignore. That's been super valuable. Hmm. And I can see both of those lessons in OpenAI and in what you have shipped and have been shipping for a few years. When we last spoke a couple of years ago, you were talking about these large language models and we're currently on GPT-4, but back then the state of the art was GPT-3. And you said to me that the gap between GPT-2 and GPT-3 was just a baby step on the continuum. You said it's just a little baby step. When you now look at GPT-4, would you say that's another baby step? It'll look like that in retrospect, I think. Right. Um, it feels like well, a big... Well, that's the nature of the exponential, yeah, right? That's, it looks that's like it. that in retrospect. Yeah. But when we're living through it... It felt like a big jump for a little while. Uh, and now people are... It's, it's very much like, what have you done for me lately? Where's GPT-5? <laughs> and that's fine. That's the way of the world. That's how it's supposed to go. People get used to anything. We establish new baselines very quickly. I'm curious, what were the insights that you gained in developing GPT-4 and in the months following its release that were different to the ones from the previous models that you'd released? We finished training GPT-4 like eight-ish months before we released it, I think. And that was by far the longest we'd ever spent on a model pre-release. One of the things that we had learned with GPT-3 was all of the ways these things break down once you put them out in the wild. We think it is really important to deploy models incrementally to give the world time to adapt, understand what we think is going to happen, what might happen, to give people time to figure out what, they, what the risks are, what the benefits are, what the rules should be. We don't want to put out a model that we know has a bunch of problems. So we spent more time applying the lessons from the earlier versions of GPT-3 to this one. And it's been nice to see it's behaving as advertised most of the time, much more of the time than before. So that was a lesson, which is that if we really spent a lot of time on alignment, auditing, testing, our whole safety system, we can make a lot of progress. So you build this model. It's an incredibly complicated machine. GPT-3, the precursor, had 175 billion parameters, which I think of as sliders on a graphic equalizer. It's a lot of configuration. And GPT-4 is larger still, although you haven't sort of formally said how much larger. How do you take that machine and get it to do what we want it to do and not do what we don't want it to do? That's the alignment problem. And that's where you've spent this eight months. Yeah. So I want to be clear on this. Just because we're able to align GPT-4 does not mean we're like out of the woods, not even close, as I hope is obvious. We have a huge amount of work to do to figure out how we're going to align super intelligence and much more powerful systems than what we have now. Mm. And I, I, I worry that when we say, hey, we can align GPT-4 pretty well, people think, we think we've solved the problem, we don't. But it is, I think, remarkable that we can take the base model of GPT-4, which if you used it, you'd be like, this is not very impressive or it's at least extremely difficult to use. And with so little effort, we can do RLHF and get the model to be so usable and so aligned. And RLHF is reinforcement learning with human feedback, which I think is the way that you get people to answer questions from GPT-4 and tell it when it's been good and when it's yep. not met expectations. Yep. And, it and it's very tiny amounts of feedback and it's very unsophisticated too. It's really just like thumbs up, thumbs down. 
And the fact that this works, I think, is like quite remarkable. You've said you're not training GPT-5 right now. And I was curious about why that was. Was it that there's not enough data? Was it that there aren't enough computer chips to train it on? Was it that you saw things going on when you were making GPT-4 happen that you thought, we need to figure out how to tackle these before we build the next? These models are very difficult to build. Like the time between GPT-3 and 4 was almost three years. Mm -hmm. It just takes a while. There's a lot of research to go do. Um, There's also a lot of other stuff we want to do with GPT-4 now that it's done. We want to study post-training a lot. We want to expand it in all sorts of ways. The fact that they can ship an iPhone every year is incredible to me. But we're just going to be on a longer than one year cadence. You said that there's more research to be done. And there are a number of very well-storied AI researchers who have said that large language models are limited. They will not get us to the next performance increase that you can't build artificial general intelligence with LLMs. Do you agree with that? I mean, first of all, I think most of those commentators have been horribly wrong about what LLMs are going to be able to do. And a lot of them have now switched to saying, well, it's not that LLMs aren't going to work. It's that they work too well and they're too dangerous and we got to stop them. Um, Or others have just said, well, you know, it's all still like a parlor trick and this is not any real learning. Some of the more sophisticated ones say, okay, LLMs work better than expected, but they're not going to get all the way to AGI in the current paradigm. And that we agree with. Mm -hmm. So I think we absolutely should push as far as we can in the current paradigm, but we're hard at work trying to figure out the next paradigm. The thing I'm personally most excited about, maybe of the whole AGI world, is that these models at some point are going to help us discover new science Mm -hmm. fast and in really meaningful ways. But I think the fastest way to get there is to go beyond the GPT paradigm. Models that can generate new knowledge, models that can come up with new ideas, models that can sort of just figure things out that they haven't seen before. And that's going to require new work. I've been using GPT-4 obsessively uh, I'm for happy to hear the last, last few, few months. It's quite something. And I do feel that it's sometimes coming up with new knowledge. I haven't done a robust test, but I'm sitting here as somebody who works in research, and I'm thinking, I have learned something new here. So what's going on? Yeah, I mean, there's like glimpses of it, right? And it can do small things, but it can't self-correct and stay on the rails enough where you can just say, hey, GPT-4, please go cure cancer. That's not going to happen. Right. But it would be nice if we had a system that could do that. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. 
Visit Bloomberg.com slash Enterprise Data to learn more. Obviously, we're talking about how powerful these technologies are, and there will also be downsides. And let's start with one that is quite proximate today. So GPT-4 and these other large language models are very, very good at producing text, human-sounding text. And so it opens up that risk of misinformation and disinformation, in particular, as we head in towards important elections in the United States. How serious a risk do you see that? I do think disinformation is becoming a bigger challenge in the world. And also, I think it's a somewhat fraught category. You know, we've labeled things as disinformation as a society that turned out to be true. Right. We've kicked people off platforms for saying things that turned out to be true. And we're going to have to find a balance where we preserve the ability to be wrong in exchange for sometimes exposing important information and without saying everything is, you know, intentional disinformation used to manipulate. But people that are intentionally being wrong in order to manipulate, I think is a real problem. And we've seen more of that with technology. I mean, 3.5 in particular is really quite good. So if there was going to be a disinformation wave, wouldn't it have come earlier? So I was going to get there. I I think humans are already good at making disinformation and maybe the, the GPT models make it easier, but that's not the thing I'm afraid of. Also, I think it's tempting to compare AI and social media but they're super different. Like you can generate all the disinformation you want with GPT-4, but if it's just for yourself and it's not being spread, it's not going to do much. I think what is worth considering is what's going to be different with AI and where is it going to plug into channels that could help it spread. And I, I think one thing that will be different is the interactive, personalized, persuasive ability of these systems. Mm-hmm. So the idea that I might get a, a robocall on my phone, I pick it up, and then the messaging in there is really attuned to me. So it's emotionally resonant, really realistic, and read out by a machine. That that, that's good. what I think the new challenge will be. And there's a lot to do there. We can build refusals into the models. We can build monitoring systems so people can't do that at scale. But we're going to have powerful open source models out in the world. And those, the open AI techniques of what we can do on our own systems won't work the same. Right. So just to clarify that point, right, because with open AI, you have an API and you have a named customer. So if you see bad behavior, you can turn that person off. Whereas an open source model could be run by anyone on their desktop computer at some point. And it's actually much harder. There's a proliferation problem. Yeah. But solving this can't just be open AI's remit, right? You must be asking for help the, the real There's regulatory things that we can do that will help some. The real solution here is to educate people about what's happening. We've been through this before. When Photoshop first became popular, there was a brief period of time where people like seen this believing it's got to be real. And then people learn quickly that it's not. And some people still fall for this stuff. But on the whole, if you see an image, you know it might be digitally manipulated. Well understood. The same thing will happen with these new technologies. But the sooner we can educate people about it, because the emotional resonance is going to be so much higher, uh, I think the better. Let's turn to education. We're in a global university here. And of course, education is closely connected to the job market. When we, previous times, we've seen powerful new technologies emerge, they have really impacted power dynamics between workers and employers. I think back to the late 18th century, there was Engels' pause, the point in time in England where yeah. 
GDP went up, but worker wages were stagnant. When we're looking at AI, we might see something similar. And neither you nor I, I think, want historians of the future to be describing Altman's pause when wages suffered under a, a point of, of, of wage pressure because of the new technology. What are the interventions that are needed to make sure that, that there is a sort of equitable sharing of the gains from the technology? Well, first of all, we just need gains. We need growth. I think one of the problems in the developed world right now is we don't have enough sustainable growth and that's causing all sorts of problems. So I'm excited that this technology can bring the missing productivity gains of the last few decades back. Some technologies are reduce inequality by nature and some enhance it. I'm not totally sure how this one's going to go, but I think this is a technology that the shape of which is to reduce inequality. My basic model of the world is that the cost of intelligence and the cost of energy are the two limiting inputs. And if you can make those dramatically cheaper, dramatically more accessible, that does more to help poor people than rich people, frankly, although it'll help everyone a lot. This technology will lift all of the world up. Most people in this room, if they need some sort of intellectual cognitive labor, they can, they can afford it. Most people in the world often can't. And if, if we can commoditize that, um, I think that is an equalizing force and an important one. Can I say one more yeah, thing? Of course. I think there will be way more jobs on the other side of this technological revolution. I'm not a believer that this is the end of work at all. I think like we will look back at the mundane jobs many of us do today and be like, that was really bad. This is much better and more interesting now. I still think we'll have to think about distribution of wealth differently than we do today. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fine. We actually think about that somewhat differently after every technological right. revolution. I also think, given the shape of this particular one, the way that access to these systems is distributed fairly is going to be a very challenging question. Right. And, you know, I think access is so important. And in those previous revolutions, the technology revolutions, the thing that drew us together was political structures. I mean, it was trade unionism yeah. and labor collectives in the late 19th century. When we look at something like AI, can you imagine the types of structures that would be needed for recognizing and redistributing the gains from unpaid or low-paid work that's often not recognized? For example, the work that women are doing around the world. I, I think there will be an important and overdue shift in the kinds of work that we value and providing human connection to people will all of a sudden be, as it I think should be, one of the most valued types of work happen in all kinds of different ways. So when you reflect on how AI has progressed to this point, what lessons, if any, can we draw about the journey towards artificial superintelligence and how that might emerge? This is the idea of having an artificial intelligence that is more capable than humans in, in every and all domains. It's hard to give a short answer to this question, but You've I'll got try. the time. I think there's a lot of things that we've learned so far, but one of them is that a, we have an algorithm that can genuinely, truly learn, and B, it gets predictably better with scale. And these are two remarkable facts put together. And I think, even though we think about that every day, I suspect we don't quite feel how important that is. One observation is that it's just going to keep going. A another observation is that we will have these discontinuous increases occasionally where we figure out something new. And a third is that I think the way that I used to think about heading towards superintelligence is we were going to build this one extremely capable system, and there were a bunch of challenge, safety challenges with that, and it was sort of a world that was going to feel quite unstable. But I think we now see a path where we very much build these tools 
not creatures, tools that get more and more powerful. And there's billions of copies, trillions of copies being used in the world, helping individual people just be way more effective, capable of doing way more. The amount of output that one person can have can dramatically increase. And where the super intelligence emerges is not just the capability of our biggest single neural network, but all of the new science we're discovering, all of the new things we're creating. And the interactions between these billions and trillions of other systems. The society we build up, which is AI-assisted humans using these tools to build up this society and the knowledge and the technology and the institutions and the norms that we have. And that vision of living with superintelligence seems to me way better all around and a way more exciting future for me, for all of you, I hope hope you agree on this, than the kind of like one super brain. You've really brought a visionary picture to us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Reflecting on this conversation with Sam, I'm struck by how willing he is to engage with the profound risks that AI could pose. Maybe this is because the technology is evolving so quickly that it's hard even for someone in his position to figure out what comes next. One thing remains true. I believe it isn't just down to the tech bosses to work out how this technology can help us. Instead, this is a process we should all have a say in. Thanks for listening to The Exponentially Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review or rating. It really does help others find us. The Exponentially Podcast is presented by me, Azim Azar. The sound designer is Will Horrocks. The research was led by Chloe Ipper and music composed by Emily Green and John Zarconi. The show is produced by Frederick Casella, Maria Gavrilov and me, Azim Azar. Special thanks to Sage Bauman, Jeff Grocott and Magnus Henriksen. The executive producers are Andrew Barden, Adam Kamiski, and Kyle Kramer. David Ravella is the managing editor. Exponentially was created by Frederick Casella and is an E to the Pi I plus one limited production in association with Bloomberg LLC. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.